Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Susanna Fullerton is a popular literary lecturer and author. She's a leading authority on 19th and 20th century writers with a special interest in Jane Austen. She's president of the Jane Austen Society of Australia and also leads literary tours to the UK every year. Her latest book is Brief Encounters, Literary Travellers in Australia, 1836 to 1939. It's an often humorous look at the experiences of many of literature's greatest writers when they visited Australia. The book features writers such as Charles Darwin, Robert Louis Stevenson, D.H. Lawrence and Mark Twain. So thanks for joining us today, Susanna. Hi, Valerie. Now, you've written two books about Jane Austen, and you're also president of the Jane Austen Society of Australia. Why? What is it that you love about Jane Austen? Well, I just think she's the greatest novelist of all time. I love her (laughs) humour. I love the style of her writing. I love the romances in her novels. And I think most of all, I love her understanding of human nature. She's just got such a wonderful... Uh, grasp of of what makes people tick and that's there in all of her novels and is still so modern and so relevant today. Mm. So I I love her for lots of reasons. (laughs) And how how did you get into it in the first place? What what age were you when you discovered Jane Austen? Uh, My mother read me Pride and Prejudice when I was about 12 or 13 years old and I was completely hooked from that moment. Uh, I was very lucky that she read to me during my teens. So she introduced me to a lot of the great English classics when I was still very young. And she could always stop and explain a word if I didn't quite understand or uh, discuss it with me afterwards. And I think that gave me the most marvellous introduction to the the great novels of English literature. So I was very lucky indeed. So apart from Jane Austen, do you have any other favourite writers that you love just as much? Well, nobody that I love as much as Jane Austen. She's definitely up there on a pedestal of her own. And, of course, uh, Shakespeare is, is the greatest writer of all time. And, you know, when you read Shakespeare, you realise he's in a complete class of his own. Mm. But uh, with other novelists, I'm, I'm very fond of uh, Anthony Trollope, of, of Dickens. I love Robert Louis Stevenson's Kidnaps. That's one of my favourite novels of all time. Um, George Eliot. Uh, so, you know, many of the great writers of the, of the 19th century. And um, at the moment, I'm preparing a big course that I'm going to be teaching at the Art Gallery on great European literature. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's some absolutely marvellous novels there as well. So I've been really enjoying the, uh, the preparation for that course. Now, it would be safe to say that you've probably read several Jane Austen books multiple times. Which book <laughs> have you read the most? Well, <laughs> And how many well, times? Well, I've probably read Pride and Prejudice the most, although Emma is my favourite novel of all time. Mm. Uh, I usually reread each of the six novels every year. Mm. Um, sometimes it might be a year and a half or something, but, but round about every year I reread all six. Uh, I particularly love listening to them on audiobook, unabridged, of course. I can't bear abridged versions because you lose too many marvellous lines. 
But uh, as I'm driving the car or cooking in the kitchen, I can listen to Jane Austen being wonderfully read by Prunella Scales or Juliet Stevenson or you know, one of those great English actresses. Mm. And that's a fantastic way to experience the novels. So I re- reread bits often. So, you know, I might just pick up a Jane Austen novel and read a, a favourite ball scene or a picnic or a proposal. But uh, generally, I do go through all six of them at least once a year. So when you reread or re-listen, do you actually get more out of it at that time or more yeah, information? I think every single time you go back to a Jane Austen novel, you learn something new every time. Yeah. Uh, especially if you're hearing it read by somebody else, you think, oh, that gives a whole new meaning to that sentence if the emphasis is put on this word or that word. Mm. Uh, you pick up different nuances as you listen to somebody reading it. And when you go back and you, you... I mean, Jane Austen was a writer who never wasted a word. Every word is there for a purpose in mm. her books. And that's why you can just go back to them again and again and still get something new every time you read them. Now, your latest book focuses on writers visiting Australia between 1836 and 1939. Why this particular period? Well, I think it's an interesting period because uh, there was such a change in Australia uh, during that time. I mean, Charles Darwin is the first of the writers that I discuss in my book, and he came here on the Beagle for scientific purposes. Uh, the journey took months and months. In fact, he'd been you know, travelling for over four years by the time he arrived in Australia. But it was a long, dangerous, tedious journey. He was seasick a lot of the way. Uh, it, uh, when he got here, of course, it was very remote and cut off. It was still the days of, of the convicts. Um, it wasn't terribly civilised when it came to things like bookshops and uh, that sort of thing. And he found it, a, in many ways, a pretty primitive sort of place and was delighted to go back to England after being in Australia. Yeah. But uh, just over 100 years later, H.G. Wells came to Australia and the purpose of his visit was to come for a science conference. So, you know, conferences were being held. There were science institutions, of course, and universities. Yeah. Uh, and he arrived on a ship a uh, fairly comfortable ship, although he complained that the showers were not quite what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And when he left at the end of his visit, he left on an aeroplane. Uh, it was a slow trip home with lots of stops at different places for refueling. But from that time, writers began to come in much larger numbers by plane. So that was where I decided to cut my book off because I wanted to show an era when it took a real effort to get mm-hmm. to Australia. They needed to really want to come for some reason or another. Uh, So that was why I chose that period of 1836 to 1939. And out of all the writers that you cover in that period, who do you think had the most interesting or unusual experience here in Australia? Well, it's very hard to select one because they all had uh, quite a range of different experiences. Mm. Uh, Mark Twain lectured and made everybody laugh so much it hurt them. Uh, Jack London saw an event at, at Rushcutters Bay that... Uh, when he wrote articles about it for American newspapers, caused race riots in America. Mm. So um, H.G. Wells had a very public site in the newspapers with the Prime Minister. Uh, There were all sorts of interesting experiences. Arthur Conan Doyle tried to convert everyone to spiritualism and they weren't terribly interested. So a great range of experiences. And it's very hard to select one that I felt was, was most interesting. Uh, I just became fascinated by each of the 11 writers in my book and 
looking at why they came here, what they thought of us, what we thought of them, and then how they put Australia into the books that they went on to write after their visits mm. and how they showed Australians to the rest of the world uh, in, their, in the literature that they wrote. And how did you go about researching these 11 writers? What was the primary source and how long did it take? Well, I guess I can say it's really taken most of my life because yes. I've always been so keen on, on most of those novelists that uh, I've, you know, I've been reading them for almost as long as I can remember. You know, Kipling and Trollope and Stevenson and, and Mark Twain and uh, Agatha Christie and, and the other writers. Mm. So it's really a lifetime of, of reading their works and in many cases reading biographies about them. But obviously when I approached this book, I had to read several biographies of each of the authors in the book. I had to read any letters that they wrote while they were in Australia, describing their experiences and giving their um, reasonably unguarded impressions of Australia. I had to look through old newspapers to get press reports if any of the visits were recorded in the papers. And uh, obviously, you know, any journals, anything like that that they wrote uh, about the time that they were here. And then I really needed to read all the books that they had written after they had been in Australia to see what references they made to Australia. So, uh, in, you know, in some cases that was quite a task because some of them were very prolific writers. <laughs> mm. So really, I guess, actual working on the book was a couple of years but as I say, there was uh, behind that pretty much a lifetime of, of reading their books. Mm. Well, I make the assumption that you must enjoy the research process. I love the research. <laughs> it was huge fun. <laughs> do you enjoy it as much as the writing? How do they compare? Well, I think probably I prefer the research. Um, mm. It can be very daunting to sit in front of a blank piece of paper and know that somehow you've got to put words on it. Mm. Sometimes making a start can be very hard. Uh, and often it's best to just start with something so long as that piece of paper is no longer blank and you can go back later and scrap the whole lot. But at least you've got something started and then the creative processes, I suppose, start to, to sort of flow and uh, you end up with a, a finished chapter. Uh, the thing I find hardest of all is rewriting. Mm. Uh, but I've been really lucky with Picador. I had a great editor and, you know, I've on the whole loved all the suggestions from the editor. So that smoothed that process considerably. But rewriting is what I find hardest of all. Mm. <laughs> so you write a lot about other writers. So is it then difficult to find your own style when you're writing about literature's greatest writers? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, I think because I've spent uh, most of my working career as a lecturer giving talks about famous writers, I've found my own style in my talks. Mm. And a lot of people who've read my books say that it sounds just like one of my talks. So I think, you know, I, I'm imagining my audience as I write, uh, just as I would be giving a talk to an audience, uh, you know, somewhere in Australia. Mm. So, no, I don't think that's been a, a difficulty at all. Um, and I love talking about my favourite writers. I've, I've made a career out of that, and, mm. uh, and it's tremendous fun. I say to people, I'm paid to talk about my favourite subject, so it's great. Wonderful. <laughs> what a wonderful place to be. It is. <laughs> Have you ever been attracted to writing fiction or other genres? Uh, I did once try, as, uh, many years ago when I was at home with young children, um, tried to write a romance, but uh, I just didn't feel it was successful and um, I never went any further with that. I think my problem is that I spend my working life and my 
my uh, relaxation as well, reading some of the greatest writers of all time. Mm. And so the standard is just so incredibly high that anything I write mm. in the way of fiction is going to seem you know, dull and pale and pathetic in comparison. Somehow so I doubt I think that. that but... <laughs> sort of puts me off writing fiction. <laughs> you know, when, you, when you've got Jane Austen so firmly in your mind, it's just, you know, you're just never going to compare. <laughs> now you spend a lot of time on the lecture circuit and also hold annual literary tours overseas. You're a busy person. <laughs> where, where does your writing fit in? Is it something that you block out time for or you do it a bit here, a bit there? How does that work? Um, I, I said, yes, a bit here and a bit there. Um, I'm very much a morning person. I work much better in the morning. So uh, I begin my day with a walk in Centennial Park with a friend and by nine o'clock I'm back home with a cup of coffee ready to start work. So I try to make sure that the morning time is, is the writing time uh, and in the afternoon I do the, the, the mindless tasks like grocery shopping or the ironing or <laughs> boring things like that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. that don't sort of take so much creative energy. Uh, and I'm a very organised person, so I think that helps. I just pack a lot into every single day. Now, you say that you've made a career out of talking about something that you love. Do you find that a lot of other people share this kind of passion or is it something already or is it something that you manage to inspire and instill in them? Well, a lot of people, when they come to my talk, say, oh, goodness, I wish I'd had somebody like you teaching me English when I was at school. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I take a, a slightly different approach. I mean, school teachers obviously have to teach the text and, and bear in mind that kids have to do an exam and write essays and things like that. Mm. I give my talks uh, partly to instruct, of course, but also to entertain uh, so I tell people all the juicy details about the life of the writer and how a particular incident in their lives might have affected what they wrote. And uh, I do dramatic readings from the novels because I've done drama training. Uh, so really I'm, I'm entertaining people, uh, making them much more aware of great works from literature, uh, hopefully encouraging them to go away and read a lot more. I always tell people, you know, what, what are the best biographies or best critical works to read if they want to explore that writer further. Uh, so, I, 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 you know, I don't think I'm alone in my passion. Um, there are many wonderful literary societies in Australia, as well as the Jane Austen Society. There's a Dickens one, a Bronte one, a Sherlock Holmes one, a Byron one, a Dylan Thomas one, a Dr. Johnson one. So all sorts of different great literary societies. Uh, and, um, you know, in those societies are, are groups of people who love to read, who love the, the great English classics, and uh, it's those sorts of people who come to my talks. But also I think people from a great range of, of uh, life experiences who perhaps spent their lives working in science or in medicine or law or whatever, uh, and just think, right, that's something I want to learn more about is literature. Mm. So when I give talks at the State Library or the Art Gallery of New South Wales, I get hundreds of people coming along who just want to learn more about great literature. And, you know, I'm just very lucky that that's something that uh, I love doing and that they're all happy to come and listen to my talks. (laughs) And now in the age of MySpace and Facebook and texting people, do you find that younger people respond to Jane Austen in the way that you did when you were younger? They do. um, Slightly different ways, of course, from when I was younger. Um, When I was growing up, there was 
one film of, of uh, Pride and Prejudice, and that was mm. pretty much about it. These days, of course, young people are greatly influenced by the movie versions. Uh, and I think the movie versions, you know, most of them have been really good. And it's wonderful if they encourage students to then go away and read the book. Mm. Personally, I think it's nicest to read the book first and then watch the movie afterwards. But, but if that's the way that they're brought to Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility or Emma, then, then that's great. I'm, I'm not going to complain about that. So... Um, uh, you know, in that way, I think it is it is different. But uh, I give a lot of talks at schools and at libraries, and and I'm always delighted at how many young people turn up to uh, to hear more about Jane Austen and her life and times, and who are so enthusiastic about doing the books at school. It's fabulous. I know a lot of boys struggle with Jane Austen at school. Yeah. I don't know that it's always the wisest choice to give them an Austen novel when they're 16 years old. But uh, fortunately, many men do come to her novels a bit later on in their lives and, and discover what a wonderful writer she is. And you spoke before about listening to audiobooks and enjoying audiobooks. Now, I love audiobooks, but some people say that it's not really reading. What's your comment on that? Well, of course it's reading. I mean, it, it, what else is it? You're, you're going through a book from the first word to the last and, and you're taking it in. So whether you take it in through your eyes or your ears, you are still reading the book. Uh, it is a, a slightly different experience, of course, because you're listening rather than your eyes passing over the page. Mm. But it's a fantastic experience. It makes all the difference to a long car trip or to boring cooking jobs in the kitchen. Mm. Uh, I can't recommend audiobooks too strongly. I think they are absolutely fantastic. Mm. And these days, libraries are wonderfully stocked with a, a really great range of, of good audiobooks. So for those people out there who haven't yet tried them, uh, they are missing out on a real pleasure in life. Mm, I love them. I can't live without them. And, and poetry is just superb. When you, know, read, you listen to a great poem read by Richard Burton, it's just one of mm. life's greatest experiences. Mm. So to, to listen to poetry rather than read it is absolutely marvellous. And there's a great selection of poetry now on, on audio. So um, it, it really is absolutely fantastic. And People tend to be a bit frightened of poetry and think, oh, you know, mm. I'll, I'll never sit down and read a book of poetry. But get out an audio of an audio CD of, of some of the great poems and listen to Richard Burton reading The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner mm. or you know, some, of, some of those things. It's, it's absolutely marvellous. I agree. So, you know, like, as I say, I just can't recommend it strongly enough. <laughs> now, you spoke about the blank page. What do you do when you are faced with that blank page? You've had your morning walk. You've had your cup of coffee. <laughs> what can, do you have some techniques or tools to help you get writing? Well, I found with uh, with my the chapters on on my great writers coming to Australia that the way I wanted to start off each chapter was by telling some entertaining little anecdote about their visit. So uh, I would try and, and, and find a, a really good anecdote. For example, with Mark Twain, I begin the chapter there by telling about a, a talk that he gave in the little town of Horsham in Victoria. Uh, which was supposed to be one of the best talks he'd ever given in his life. Mm. And I describe the atmosphere in the hall before Mark Twain comes on stage. And then I talk about the long pauses where he gets everybody almost at fever pitch waiting for him to start. And then in the slow Southern American drawl, he begins to tell a story. And by the time he's finished with that audience, Dozens of burst off clothing from people mm. laughing. People, are, are, their ribs are aching because they've been laughing so much. 
And Mark Twain has them exactly where he wants them. He just plays his audience like a skilled angler playing with a fish. And, and it's a wonderful scene. So I started my chapter with that anecdote. And then I went on to explain why he came to Australia, what he thought of it, what he did, uh, and what else he wrote uh, as a result of that visit. So that's really the technique that I use in my lectures. I often begin my lectures by either doing a dramatic reading from one of the works or telling some entertaining little anecdote. And that way you get your audience interested from the beginning. You don't start off with a whole lot of boring facts and figures where you might lose your audience or your reader uh, too quickly. Mm. So I found that the technique that I used in lecturing worked really well in the book. And several reviewers have commented that they like the, uh, the anecdotes that begin each chapter. Uh, gets you interested in the individual from the beginning of the chapter. Mm, hook them in. <laughs> hook them in. <laughs> um, so what are you working on next? Oh, help. <laughs> At the moment, loads of publicity for the new book yes. uh, with uh, talks, my usual range of lectures. Um, another project that I have been busy on recently is creating an audio CD. Uh, I was asked by a recording company in the UK to create a CD about the life of the New Zealand writer, Catherine Mansfield. Right. So I wrote a script for that and recorded it when I was in the UK recently, and that will be commercially available in September. So that was great fun. I really enjoyed that project. Wonderful. And I do have several ideas for new books, so those I need to discuss with my publisher. And when I can find the spare five minutes in my day, <laughs> do something about making a start and writing another one. <laughs> Which And there goes another two years of your life, I suppose. That's right. <laughs> and, and I do have another literary tour coming up in two weeks' time. So I'll be in England for three weeks leading a, a group of Australians around some of my favourite literary places in England. So uh, that's something to look forward to. Wonderful. And finally, what advice do you have for other writers who might be interested in writing non-fiction just like yourself? Uh, I think it's being organised and filling that day with the right activities. Uh, There's a wonderful line in Rudyard Kipling's poem, If... Uh, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. Um, and you know, he, he then goes on with the rest of the poem. But fill that unforgiving minute with the 60 seconds worth of distance run uh, is really probably the best advice. Just keep at it, keep busy, keep working at it, and in the end you will have the right, uh, the right product. Beautiful. And on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Susanna. Thanks, Valerie. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's Valerie Koo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.